may be seated. Psalm chapter 20. We continue in our series in the book of Psalms. And, you know, as you're turning, this psalm is different from the other psalms in, that we have studied so far. Matter of fact, Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 go together. Um, they, they are the first of um, the really corporate psalms. They're not individual prayers as much as they are the prayers of God's people for the king. In 20, we have a prayer for the king from the people. And then in 21, we have the response from the people because God answered their prayer for the king. And the king in mind is David. And there's, uh, I think, good historical uh, evidence from interpreters long ago that tell us that this psalm was, I want you to envision this, this psalm was probably sung or prayed as David led the people into worship. Um, if you know David, he, he ruled in, uh, in um, seven years outside of Jerusalem, 33 years inside Jerusalem's walls. He was a passionate leader. He was the people's leader. He was God's chosen shepherd. And he, he led these people in this praise. And so when you read the words today, you're not going to hear a first-person pronoun. You're going to hear a second-person pronoun, we. You're going to hear that we pray this. And we ask God on your behalf, in a sense. And so the people, you want you to envision David in front, leading them to worship. And they're praying this out loud. They're singing it. They're chanting it to the Lord. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This is what the people would say. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May, the, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Second stanza. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Heart of the psalm right here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. A shout. Of affirmation to God. Oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The connection between these two passages, 20 and 21, is very tight. If you look at 21, I, I won't go there. That's next week. But look how they begin. They ended with, oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when he, we call. And then they begin, oh Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And what? And in your salvation how greatly he exults. The answer has come. God has saved the king. We should be amazed that God, in all of his holiness, in all of his power, in all of his majesty, in all of his goodness, in all of his mercy, in all of his grace, in all of his just righteous wrath, answers the prayers of his people. Only in a day driven by consumerism and driven by the things of this world and the mentality of this world would that go unnoticed, really, by God's people. Now, obviously the world doesn't notice it. That shouldn't surprise us. But even in our day, God's people don't recognize God's answer to his prayer often, do we? 
And I've said this before, but I want to repeat it again. One of the things we learn from Psalms like Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 is that we pray expecting God to answer. And when He answers, we don't forget that He answered. We respond in joy to His answer. How many times have you prayed? Prayed fervently. And then God gives an answer and it gets no mention. I mean, even in conversation with other people. Oh, that's amazing how that worked out. Yeah, that was great. You know, I, I found that on my own. You know, it's almost, it's, it's a self-fulfilling thing. Sometimes it makes me wonder about myself. And I just will ask the question of myself so you can ask it of yourself. When we pray, do we, are we really praying to God? Or are we talking to ourselves? I mean, are, are, have we bought into the philosophy of this world to the point? I'm just asking the question. That when we pray, really we're just saying positive things or things we want. And it's, in a sense, coaching our own conscience to buck up and do better and, and do something. I mean, I think that Psalms like Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 call us to answer a question about our prayer lives. Are we begging God that He would act on our behalf? And when He acts, are we taking credit or are we thanking God and rejoicing in God's goodness to answer us? That, that's the question. And I think that comes from the heart of this psalm. I said it when I was reading it. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that true? Do we really trust in the name of the Lord our God? I mean, weeks like this week put us to the test on that, right? Things go against us in public life. The politics of the day, the vibe of the day, the direction of the nation headed away from what we believe and what we know God has taught in His Word. What was the response in your own heart? Despair? Loathing? Hatred? Disappointment? Brokenness? Prayerfulness? Did you slow down? Did I slow down in all of our whining and complaining? Did we ever slow down and actually pray to God? That he would do something or not. This is the kind of thing that's very practical about studying a psalm like we study today. Is It calls us to examine our own hearts. And I want us to do that pretty deeply here as we walk through these stanzas. There's two main stanzas and a response of affirmation to God. The first stanza covers the first five verses. The second stanza six through eight. And then nine is out of a summation acclamation to God and his goodness. So let's walk through this together. The first Part of the psalm, this is a psalm of God's grace on the king. The first part of the psalm is a prayer of salvation in the day of trouble. A prayer of salvation in the day of trouble. And we see here that this is not being worded by the king himself, but rather it's being worded by God's people about the king. This is the people's prayer for their king. It echoes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when Paul says, that we are to pray for men in position of power over us. The people are doing that here. May, notice their request. The word may is the key. This is not David saying, God, do this for me. This is the people of Israel praying this for their king. This is a 1 Timothy chapter 2 kind of prayer. This is a prayer that you should pray and I should pray for our leadership constantly. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So the first thing they want is God to answer they're calling on God to answer the prayer of the king. Answer him, Lord. Secondly, protect him. How to protect him? May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. 
in, the, in this prayer, we see their exalting of God's name, the hallowing of God's name, the lifting up of God's name. In, here in, in verse 1, we see that they are asking God to protect the king by God's own name. His character. That's what they're saying. And when, when they say, protect him with your name, they don't mean just simply the name. They mean all that stands behind the name. Names are significant because names tell us about the person. Now, not so much in our day, right? We name people after soap opera stars and the like, right? But names used to matter. And so what the people are saying is, God, the God of Jacob, our forefather, you're the one to protect our king. Protect him by your character. Protect him by your might. Protect him by your strength. Protect him by your omnipresence. Protect him by your omniscience. Protect him by your majesty. Protect him by your grace, by your mercy, by your justice. This is what they're praying. The prayer in the day of trouble is a prayer unto God on behalf of the king or on behalf of the one in trouble that God would answer, that God would protect by his own character. Then they move forward. That he would send help to him from the sanctuary, and that he would give support from Zion. Already here we see the embodiment of heaven in Zion. The people in David's day understood the connection between the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. I don't believe necessarily that in mind of the people is the temple or the sanctuary or the tabernacle in their day on earth, but rather the copy is pointing to the reality in heaven, and they're calling on God to help from His very own sanctuary. Give support from your very own holy hill, Mount Zion. Not, not just the earthly, temporal hill, but the heavenly hill. In other words, what they're saying is, God, you from your throne, help our king. They're calling on a personal God to do a personal act of deliverance on behalf of them and their king. Help him in the day of trouble, protect him by your name, and send help from your own sanctuary and from your own holy hill. Then in verse 3, we see that he asked that he give regard, that God give regard to his sacrifices, that God remember that the king is a holy man, that the king has bowed the knee and he is giving right sacrifices in the temple on behalf of, of him and his family and the nation. So God, remember in the day of trouble that our king is a man after your own heart. It's not a prayer, again, that is directed by David, but we can hear here, here in this place, David's own heart. It's not that I'm worthy. This, this, this is what you see in this about sacrifice. It's not, not that David's saying, I'm innocent of everything. I've never sinned. I'm perfect and I deserve to be delivered. But he's saying, God, I'm a sinner. I've offered sacrifices as you have prescribed, and I'm calling on you to help me. You're my God. So in the day of trouble, we see the prayer coming forth from the people on behalf of their king, calling on God to help their king, protect their king, send help from your own holy sanctuary, because why? Our king is a man after your own heart. So because he's after your heart, we ask you would grant his heart's desire. You see how that works? They're not asking to, for the human desire to be fulfilled. They're asking for God's desire to be fulfilled, which is the desire of David's heart. Their prayer is for a king that loves 
the Lord their God. And they're asking the Lord their God to protect him. We see here, granted his plans that they might prevail and that they might succeed. May we shout for joy. Lord, we want to praise you. We want to honor you. Fulfill your petitions. As we pray for you, King, as you pray for yourself, as you pray for our nation, we ask God to fulfill your petition. So the first thing we see is that the prayer of salvation rises up in the day of trouble from the people, not only from the king, to God. Second stanza, we can have confidence in, in faith in the day of trouble. We can have confidence. Now, what we find in the second half is that David's confidence in faith in the day of trouble. We don't know what historical setting this battle, particular battle, took place. David was characterized as a man of war. We know that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells him, you can't build the temple because you are a king of war. You have blood on your hands. Your son will build the temple. But you yourself will not build this temple because you're a man of war. And David was. David reconquered and retook and recontrolled the land that had been promised. And Solomon entered into the peace of his father. David died uh, having brought under his control the land promised to him and his descendants. And then Solomon reigned in that day of peace. David, David was the man of war. But look what he did. In the day of trouble, he has confidence. And what is his confidence in? And I just want to jump exactly to verse 7 here. Because this is the heart of David's confidence. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, where does David get this? Look with me. Hold your place here to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 16. Here in the law, God gives instructions to his people. And he gives a law concerning the king of Israel. The idea to have a king over Israel was not the people's idea. That was God's idea. The people did it wrongly. God had a plan. The people tried to put their own man Saul in charge. But God stopped that and gave the kingship to David. And I believe it's Deuteronomy 17 tells us what God looked at and what God expected when he gave them a king. And look, we'll start in verse 14 for context. Look what it says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire. Look with the command. What? He must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Alright, so he goes on with other instruction, but why is it that God says, don't accumulate for yourself when you're the king many horses? Because of verse 7. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The success of Israel was brought about by the God of Israel. Not by the power of their army. 
They intentionally kept a small army when they were obedient. They didn't ever enter a battle. If you go back and read the chronicles of the kings of Israel, you'll find they're outnumbered every time they go to a battlefield. I mean, we have a ridiculous numbers at times, like 10 to 1. They could show up 10 to 1. And then their enemies defeated. Why? Because God is saying, you won't trust in the mechanisms of war and protection and human strongholds. You'll trust in me. And I will deliver you. Now, this is a precedent that didn't start with David. So I want to do a little biblical theology with you to exposit what verse 7 means. It's exemplified for us over and over and over again. So in Genesis 14, we find Abraham, the forefather of the Israelite nation. Abraham was not a trained warrior. Okay, I, one, of the, one of the men I love in this world believes he was a trained warrior. He was not a trained warrior. I do not believe that. He was not a ninja. Okay? He had highly trained servants, but what were they trained to do to protect sheep? They, again, were not a massive army. There were a little over 300 of them. Okay? And they were come against by the Canaanite kings who had bloodthirsty, trained, mercenary soldiers at their dispense. And what did God do? God defended Abraham and those 300 plus, and he gave them victory over all the kings of Canaan that came against them. They routed them. When they return in Genesis 14, verse 20, take your Bible and turn there. It's easy, easy to see this principle if we see it. As he returns from rescuing Lot from these evil kings who rose up to attack him with his highly trained servants, but remember, trained to do what? Protect flocks, not fight wars. They, they were not warriors. They were shepherds. When he comes back from the battlefield, he meets this priest, Melchizedek. And look what he does. Melchizedek, and he says, and he blessed him. He blessed Abraham, Abram, and said what? Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. The principle of verse 7 dates all the way back to Genesis 14. The forefather of Israel didn't trust in trained armies, nor did he trust in mercenary soldiers. He went against the kings of this earth with God on his side. And he defeated them. And Melchizedek records for us a blessing to bless God, to make sure we understand. It wasn't Abraham the mighty man. It wasn't his 300 trained ninjas who came by stealth at night and defeated all these kings. It was God who did it in such a way that nobody could take credit for it. Turn to Exodus just to further show you this is the lineage of the people of God that they trust in God, not in human effort and human will. Exodus 15, this is the song of Moses. After the people delivered across the Red Sea, the mightiest army in the world is drowned at the bottom of the sea. I always laugh at, at uh, scholars who scoff at this passage by saying it was real shallow. You know, that you've heard that? Like they crossed across the Red Sea on just water that was like ankle to, to knee deep. You know what I always do about that? I always say, that's even more amazing. God somehow got the Egyptians to get down off their horses and chariots and stick their noses under the water and drown to death. 
there's an entire army in that Red Sea. It's been excavated now. We don't need that. But it's there. There's all these chariots and horses buried down there. Why? Apparently, to some of these really smart scholars in the world, it's because they decided to get down and drown themselves. I take God His word. They crossed in a passage that had to be lifted up on each side, and they walked across miraculously on dry land. And as soon as they got across and the Egyptians had entered that valley of the river, the river came crashing down and destroyed the most vicious and powerful army in all the world. This is what Moses said. Moses said to the people of Israel, He sang his song, saying to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he has what? Triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exult in him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I will not trust in chariots, and I will not trust in horses, but my heart will trust in the Lord our God. Why? Because he delivered Abraham from the kings of the earth with a little over 300 men who were shepherds. And he delivered our forefathers in the desert across the Red Sea and destroyed the greatest army on earth. Joshua conquered the land. In Joshua chapter 7, he came to the most fortified city that they had come against in Jericho. And he took a really conventional way of destroying that city. It was very conventional. What he did was he put the priest in front of the people because that's what God said to do. And they marched around. And they they marched around the city. And they marched around the city. They did this day after day. And on the last day, they blew their trumpets and gave out a great cry. And what happened? Because this is what you would expect to happen, right? I mean, can't you see all the people in Jericho hurling insults, laughing at all these crazy Hebrew people down there, walking around in a circle? This is the most fortified city in their world. And all that happens, no bows and arrows, no chariots and horses, no Trojan horse slid up to the gate to trick them so they could go in and defeat them by stealth. None of that great military tactic was displayed. God said, just blow your horns and shout really loud. And when they did, what happened? The walls collapsed inwardly, just just collapsed. And the city was ransacked and defeated. Now, up until just a few years ago, the world scoffed at this idea. And then they dug and found Jericho. And they came back with these amazing findings. It looked like something catastrophic happened on the day of that battle, and the walls just fell. They weren't pulled down by people from the outside, which was one way they destroyed walls in those days was to heave them down. No, these fell as if something miraculous happened. That's that's what they reported. Well, it did happen. Why? Because the Israelite people were not trusting in horses, and they were not trusting in chariots, and they were not trusting in military might or military plans. They trusted in the name of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. So we have Abraham, we have Moses, we have Joshua, we have David in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David, a young lad, comes to the battlefield. You know the story. He faces the Philistine giant, and he defeats him. And what does he say? The Lord has defeated. The Lord has delivered our enemy into our hand. It wasn't David's great tactical warfare talent on display. It was God's goodness and mercy and grace to his people and God's ability to defeat his enemies that was on display. Psalm chapter 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Daniel 
After this psalm is written, you know, the people are led off into captivity, but the principle doesn't change. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, is convicted of a high crime. What was it? Murder? Treason? What did he do? What was his awful crime? He prayed. He prayed. But there was a law that had been erected by his enemies that said you cannot pray to anyone except the king. Daniel didn't change his behavior at all. He trusted in God. He went to his house. He prayed like he had done all his life. And they stood outside his window, heard him pray. And they came back to the king and said, there he goes. He's praying. you got to do something about it. The law of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. You can't do anything about it. Just because you like Daniel, you can't do anything about it. He couldn't be saved by the hands of man. So he's brought before him. And he says, now this one is so amazing. This pagan king says, may the Lord that you have prayed to protect you. And he threw him in the lion's den. What happened? God sent angels and shut the mouths of the lions, and Daniel used them as a Serta comfort mattress. He slept well. The king didn't sleep at all. He came back to the, he rolled the stone away. He peers down and screams. And what does Daniel say? Don't worry. My God has delivered me. Not chariots, not horses, not powerful armies, not great technique. God did it. Daniel was delivered by God. It's not just in the Old Testament that we see this, but we see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus walked on this earth as God in flesh. And He came often to points of contention. Do you remember these times? These are some of my favorite stories in the Gospels. I don't know if you, these are your favorite, but I'm going to point them out. He, at one city, was pushed back to the brow of the hill. You remember that? And he, they're ready to stone Him. And what does He do? He just, just walked away. Why? Because God delivered him. He was constantly saying, well, it's not my time to die yet. We're not going to go there. It's not my time yet. This is not the time yet. This is not the time. And then there came a day when God, in the flesh, entrusted himself to his father at Gethsemane. And he said, it's time. Your will be done, not mine. And he walked to his death. And Satan and the armies of hell could have shouted out, You should have had chariots. You should have had horses. You should have raised an army. You fool. You trusted in God and he delivered you to a cross by these filthy Romans. You fool. But in the grave, his body lay and his spirit said, not in chariots, not in horses, not even in the concocted plans of my own men who would take the sword and cut off the heads of our offenders. He said, if I had wanted to do that, I would have raised an army up and I, trust me, you couldn't have took me. That's what he told his accusers. If I wanted to defend myself and raise up a kingdom on this earth, I would do it right now. You couldn't stop it. But that's not the plan, right? So he's laid in the tomb, and the celebration, I imagine, had to have been great that of his enemies until the third day. 
And then God, once again, as he has done countless times in the past, showed that not by human wisdom and not by human plans and not by human strength, but by his strength and by his wisdom and by his plan, he would defeat his enemies on behalf of his king, Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask you, people of God, what are you trusting in? It's, oh, it's good to say Abraham trusted in God, not this world, and, and, and Moses and the people of God trusted in God, not this world, and David did it, and Daniel did it, and Jesus did it. But what about you? And what about me? When weeks like this happen, and the Supreme Court loses the ability to simply read a document and apply it, just as an aside, because I can't pass this opportunity up, this is where theology meets practice. The problem in our nation, and so many are confused about this, the problem in our nation is that the people are responding to the way God's people have treated His Word. There's nothing different about what the Supreme Court justices in the majority ruled and the way the majority of churches in our day rule on the Bible. They don't think it holds a meaning. They think it only holds the meaning that they insert in it when they read it. It's a problem with hermeneutics. It's a problem with interpretation. They don't believe in authorial intent. They don't believe in the author's having the right to say this is what our words mean. And they just took the cue from the liberal church in America that says the Word of God has a meaning when it hits my ears and it goes through my brain and that I apply it to my life. It's called a reader's interpretation. Right? And so no, we shouldn't be shocked. This is the way of the world. And it's going to get worse if we continue. So the Word of God has meaning. And it says that we are not to trust in chariots or horses or humans. You can insert in that anything. Finances, family, nation, business, anything. You insert what you trust in. And you ask yourself, am I trusting in that or am I trusting in the name of the Lord my God? for deliverance venture holy the song said on him venture holy don't allow any other trust to come in to your heart what are you trusting to defeat your greatest enemy what is your greatest enemy your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy is the same it's our sin which has brought about our death so earlier it was said there may be lost here. Yes, there very well may be. What are you trusting to defeat your greatest enemy? What will you do about your sin? What will you do about your coming and pending death? What will you trust in? Medical care? Eugenics of some kind that's going to bring about the fountain of youth where we can rejuvenate our hearts and our lungs and our capacity to live long lives or what are you trusting in I mean Ted Williams the greatest baseball player hitter in the world his family showed what they trusted in they froze his body his brain they froze it because they believed a future generation would invent a way that they could put his brain back in a body and it would work they trusted in modern science and modern medicine I tell you it'll fail you you trusting in your finances? It will fail you. The greatest economies of the world fail. You trusting in your family? 
they will fail you. You trust in your righteousness, you go stand before God, a holy God, and tout your record, it will fail you. Like chariots and like horses, God will bury it in the judgment of his wrath like he buried Egypt in the ocean. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting wholly on his son? Do you stand and say, if this isn't it, I have no hope. Christian, what are you trusting in? It's weeks like this, part, partly, that people like me find out what we trust in. Because the roots of our nation are being shaken. And we find out that we trust our citizenship on earth more than that in heaven. So we need to reorient ourselves, right? Pray the prayers that David's people prayed. Call on God to deliver us by His name. For His glory. And thank Him for the deliverance He's already given us in His Son. May the Lord deliver us by His King for His glory.